Well, hello, everybody. Looking very much forward to continuing on in our sermon series that we have just begun last week. Pastor Ben very helpfully got us kicked off with our new sermon series, and that's talking about making sense of the Bible. And I'm going to take that on today, and then next week we're going to actually wrap up this series, and we're moving on then to the Gospel of Mark. And I'm super excited about that. We'll be talking more about that later. But uh, welcome to all of those of you who are in the room. Welcome to those of you who are checking this out online, or for those of you who are in maybe our classic venue or on our Moon campus, good to be together, good to have the chance to dig deeper into the Bible, which we lift up around here, and we consider it to be very vital to our faith and to our understanding and to our growth. But there are questions that come up about the Bible. We're going to deal with some of that today. But before I jump into that, just an update for you. And that is that throughout December, we were in our Give Joy project, which was raising funds to go to dig wells in India, northern India, and provide for folks who were without water and are dying from diseases they don't need to die from and also to assist our work going forward in our car car in Kenya and to provide for food insecurity right here in our own county. And uh, you guys were put to the challenge of raising some resources to help us to accomplish those needs, and you certainly came through. And I want to share with you what the update is. If you would desire to still give toward the project, you're certainly welcome to do that. But we basically said it would be coming through till about this point, and so I wanted to give you an update. And that update is that you have given toward those efforts about $45,000 which is really awesome. Way to go with that. I'm applauding you for the things that you have done in accomplishing that. And it's not just you. You aren't the only ones who are participating in the project. Those of us who are adults in this room or whatever, our kids ministry also had a competition to raise some funds for the Give Joy project. And our kids, through their change that they were bringing, they raised $2,355.73. And that is awesome, and uh, we're so excited about what they have done. The winning class, the class that brought the most, actually gets a donut party, um, which I thought maybe we should do that for all of us, and who knows where the total might be if we did Orums or something like that, right, as a reward. But anyway, super excited about that and the difference that that's going to make in people's lives literally around the globe as well as around the county. So way to go, everybody. But we're going to continue on now in this series that we have been in. And as we get into it, thinking about the Bible, if you own a Bible, would you please shout Bible? All right, that's awesome. If you own more than one, shout Bible. Bible. If you own more than ten, shout hoarder. (laughs) All right, all right. Uh, Several of you were responding with that, and and I would be in that category. I have more than ten, though I don't necessarily consider it to be hoarding. There are different kinds and different versions and even different languages. And what surveys show is that 87% of American households own a Bible, and the average number of Bibles in those homes is 4.3. So just to let you know a little bit of where you maybe factor in with some of those others, you're probably familiar with a number of different translations that are out there like the NIV and the ESV and the RSV and the KJV and the NASB, all versions of the B-I-B-L-E. And that's the book for me, right? Yeah, I stand alone on the... 
There you go. Okay, so some of you went to Sunday school. Not as many as I thought would have gone to Sunday school, but some of you went, and, uh, and that's a good thing. Well, those are all different <coughs> versions, and that's awesome. What you're maybe not familiar with are a couple of other Bibles that have gotten different sort of unusual names. One of them is called the Wicked Bible of 1631, and here's why. Because it was printed, it printed the seventh commandment, uh, uh, <laughs> omitting the word not. And so as a result, it read, thou shalt commit adultery. And uh, so that was one. Another one was called the Sinner's Bible, printed in Ireland in 1716, which encouraged its readers in a dyslexic slip to sin on more instead of sin no more right? Okay, well, those Bibles, of course, were, were immediately recognized that that was just a printing error, and they were discarded, and uh, revisions were printed that had it the right way. And that should be the case. That is how it should happen, because we want to have confidence in the book that we are looking at, in the book that we are studying. We want to know if it is reliable. So today, the question that we're going to be asking as this message is, can the Bible be trusted? Can the Bible be trusted? Can it be trusted to be an accurate representation of what God's will would be for us, of what God's purpose would be for us? If we're going to be people who want to be people of the book, if we're going to say we're going to read this and we're going to, to give our lives to following through on what it has to say, don't you want to know for, with some confidence that it's reliable? Well, of course we do. And so that's what we're going to be digging into and taking a look at here today. Is it an accurate reflection of what was originally penned by the authors who wrote the Scriptures? So we're going to dig into that here with one another. This is an important question because if we can't trust it, then we're really just relegated to establishing our own standard of righteousness and what it should be. And, and your opinion on that would be just as authoritative as my opinion would be on that, and, and we'd all end up doing our own thing. And that's very much of what we see happening around our nation and around our world today. A lot of people saying there is no absolute standard. I'm just going to do what I think is best. But if there is a universal standard, we need to know that. We need to know what it is. We need to know and understand what it says and that we can have confidence in what it says. So we're going to dig into this. Can the Bible be trusted? Now to get to that answer, we're actually going to put the Bible to some tests. And uh, these are there on your outline. I encourage you to take a look at that. Jot some notes. We're going to go through a lot of different stuff. It's going to come fairly fast. It might feel a bit more like a classroom than what it oftentimes does here as we're together. But uh, I, think, uh, I think that you'll benefit from it as we make our way along. If you've got your journal, I hope you do. We just have two more weeks, this week and next week, in the journal that we've been using. Hopefully you have that new sticker for this series. If you don't, stop at the Information Center. They'll get one of those for you. But uh, then in two weeks when we kick off Mark, you'll have a brand new scripture journal that you can use, and I'm excited about that too. But anyway, grab that so that you can jot some of these things down. Three different tests or three different evidences that we want to look at. And the first of those is this. It's the manuscript evidence. The manuscripts of the scriptures that we have, can they be trusted? Because here's the thing. We don't have the original manuscripts of the Bible. We don't have the actual scroll that Moses wrote, or that Luke wrote, or that Paul wrote. Now, the fact that those would be somewhere between 2,000 and 3,500 years old doesn't make that particularly surprising that we don't have it, but it does raise a question 
And that is, can we trust the things that we do have? That's very important. We're going to dig into that. And to answer that question, we need to examine, well, what is it that we have? And in the case of the Bible, we've got a lot. There's a book that's very helpful. It's very readable. If you're interested, you might want to pick it up on this topic. It's called The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's very helpful, and it it speaks to some of these things that we're going to be going into here today. It says in there, among many, many other things, that in the case of the New Testament alone, we have nearly 25,000 manuscripts just of the New Testament alone. Now, that would be, of course, pre-printing press, pre-before you know, mass production of texts. It would be things that were written in the original Greek in the case of the New Testament, as well as other translations into other languages. We've got some 25,000 that are extant that we can take a look at and we can compare. And you might say, well, is 25,000 a lot? And the answer is yes, it absolutely is. Take a look at this chart on the screen. You can see that it speaks to the New Testament having nearly 25,000 different manuscripts that you can look at. And in the case, what's the second? You might wonder, well, how does that compare to others? The second most that we have is actually Homer's Iliad. And in the case of Homer's Iliad, there are 643. And most works of antiquity, what we have in terms of the number of manuscripts is somewhere more like 12 or somewhere in the single digits. You can see it's substantially different. And the preponderance of having all of that is very important for a couple of reasons to be sure. One is that you have a lot that you can take and you can compare back and forth against one another so that you can see if there's one outlier that says something very different and, you know, 24,000 others say the same thing, you know that there's something wrong with that manuscript that shouldn't be considered. It's also very important that we have so much because it tells us something about the way that the Bible was revered in the minds of those who lived at the time. Because it was very important to them that this would be preserved, that it would be revered, that it would be honored, that it would be copied so that it doesn't fall out of practice. And of course, if that's the sort of authority with which we see it, we're going to be very careful in making sure that as we copy it, we copy it very, very carefully along the way. And that's exactly what was done. So that's very, very important that we would come to understand that. So the sheer number gives us some confidence, but it's not just about how many different manuscripts we have, but also when they were written. Because in the, ta- in the case of old manuscripts, what is considered to be the most ro- reliable are those that date closest to when it was originally written. That, of course, makes sense, right? It would be most natural to think that that would be the closest to what was written. So here again, we take and consider the New Testament, and there's a, there's a table there in your notes or in the, in the outline that you can take a look at. It'll be on the screen here also. If you want to fill this in, I'd encourage you to, but you're going to have to write quickly as we go, okay? Because we're not going to be on this slide forever. But let's go ahead and talk about this. And I chose a couple. We could look at a lot of different manuscripts and make the comparison. I've just chosen a couple, Plato and Caesar, because they're pretty representative of others. And also because nobody really questions whether or not what we have in the writings of Plato or the writings of Caesar are legitimate. If they're accurate, we pretty much accept that it just is what it is. And uh, so to look at these, I think, is, is pretty fair. So let's do so. In the case of Plato in the Republic that he wrote, you have it written in the year 400, roughly the year 400 B.C., 
The earliest copy that we have of it dates to 900 A.D. So there's a period of 1,300 years that exists between when it was written and the first copy that we have. And so you would start to wonder, you know, how reliable can that really be when there's that much time that is... So you think, well, that we can compare it to other documents that we have. Well, in the case of Plato's Republic, you've got seven that you can take and compare. So how about Caesar, right? He wrote a commentary on the, the Gaelic Wars that he battled to tell his, his side of the story. Well, it was written in the year, roughly, 100 B.C. The earliest copy we have is 980. There's a thousand-year gap there, and the number that we have to compare is 10. All right, so what about the New Testament, specifically the New Testament written in Greek. So Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Well, you can see here, it was written in the second half of the first century, roughly between 50 and 100. Those authors wrote earliest extant copies we have date to about 114 A.D. So now you've got a period of maybe 15, 20 years to 65, 75 years, somewhere right in that neighborhood, which is substantially closer to when it was originally written. Now on top of that, You've got the fact that if it's that close, now you've got eyewitnesses. So if somebody is writing down something that is a bunch of garbage that didn't actually happen, that would be immediately discredited and would never have the opportunity to make it for, to move forward, to make it into the New Testament canon, which Pastor Ben helped you understand a bit about last week and so on. So you can see it's a very, very different story. And we have documents that are very, very close to the original in the case of the New Testament. And we can have confidence in that. Former uh, professor of law in his book History and Christianity, John Warwick Montgomery, wrote this. said, to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all classical antiquity to slip into obscurity for no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. All right. That's just a little bit about the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? Is it also reliable? Well, here again, you need to consider the fact that the Hebrews were very concerned for this text. They revered the text. They wanted to honor the text. They wanted to make sure that it was preserved. They would preserve it as long as they could. When a copy was wearing out, they would make a new copy so that they never lost sight of what the Scriptures were. And in this regard, a Jewish historian named Josephus also helps us. Here's what he wrote about the way that they honored it. He said this, we have given practical proof of our reverence for our own scriptures. For although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured either to add or to remove or to alter a syllable. This is the testimony of those who were living at the time about the way that the scriptures were were revered, and you can know a good bit about how well it was preserved as a result. But let me give you another piece of information that might also help you to understand a bit. There were a group of people called the Masoretes. They were scribes, professional scribes. Their job was to copy the scriptures, and so they would take the original when it was wearing out or before it got to that point, and they would copy it letter for letter, Hebrew right to left. They would just copy it letter by letter by letter all the way along. And when they were done, they would check it. 
Now, they did more than what we usually do to check. We usually just kind of read through it and we proof it. And, you know, if there's some problem, we'll grab our whiteout or we'll just, we don't do whiteout anymore. You just change it on your document on the computer. Well, they didn't have whiteout for scrolls back in the day. And besides, that's not what they would have done. What they did, they had this elaborate system of understanding. They went through and they counted every word in the original. Then they'd count every word in the document that they just wrote. If it wasn't the same, they would do something with that. They counted every letter. They knew which letter, say, of the scroll of Isaiah. They knew which letter was the middle letter. They'd count what they just copied. If it wasn't the same middle letter, they didn't just fix it. They didn't cross it out. They didn't find the problem and, you know, write it in in the margin. They burned the scroll. That's what they would do. And so you know that they're taking great care because it might take them months to copy a scroll like Isaiah. And they were very, very careful so that you know that what is resulting is something that can be relied upon. Now, the evidence of the care that they took is evidence in one of the most significant archaeological discoveries of all time. It is something called, you've heard of it, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls. And this is a pretty uh, relatively recent discovery. It was only about 75 years ago that the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. In 1947, in fact, a Bedouin shepherd boy named Muhammad was out and he was searching for a lost goat on the west shores of the Dead Sea. And there are some natural caves there in those areas. You can see on the screen what those look like. Some natural caves. And he thought, well, this goat must have gone up or might have gone up into one of those caves, climbed up. And so instead of climbing up into these different caves himself, what he did is he grabbed some stones and he started throwing them up into the caves so that he might maybe startle the goat and he'd hear it and he'd know, well, that's where I need to go to find the goat. But instead of hearing his goat, what he heard was the sound of breaking pottery. And so he went to start exploring what it was that he had heard. And when he got into this particular cave, he saw not just one one jar of pottery, but instead he saw several. And inside those jars were scrolls, ancient texts, ancient leather scrolls. And of course, many experts were brought in and they searched all the caves and they ended up coming up with 40,000 different fragments or scrolls of ancient texts. And much of that was the Bible. It included an entire scroll of Isaiah and parts of every other Old Testament book with the exception of Esther. And this is pretty significant because if you look at what we were using up until that point in time, the earliest extant manuscript of the Old Testament, in other words, the earliest copy that we had, dated to 900 A.D. 900 A.D. The, new, the Dead Sea Scrolls dated back to somewhere between or somewhere in the 1st or 2nd century B.C. So this closed the gap by more than a thousand years from what was being used. So what are you going to do next? You're going to compare, aren't you? You're going to take a look at what we had been using and you're going to take a look at what was written over a thousand years earlier and see, are they the same? Are they different? How reliable is the copy that we had from 900 A.D.? And uh, there's a scholar named Gleason Archer. He sort of summed this up, and he said this about the resulting text. He said that the Isaiah scrolls were almost identical with some minor variations in spelling and a few obvious slips of the pen. Over more than a thousand years, essentially, he's saying, 
nothing has changed. That's dynamic. In the case of the Old Testament and the New Testament, when it comes to manuscript evidence, it tells us that we can have tremendous confidence in what it is that we have with the care that was taken to make sure that it continued to be handed down from generation to generation with great consistency and care. So, that's the manuscript evidence. That's one of the tests. Another test that is normally applied in this regard is what we would call the internal test. In other words, what does what the Bible say itself give us to give us confidence that what we have is actually from God and that it can be trusted? For instance, in the case of the sinner's Bible I told you about earlier, the Sin on More Bible, even if that had somehow slipped through, it didn't, but even if it had slipped through, it never would have stood the test of time because people would have recognized that it's clearly out of step with what the rest of the Scriptures have to say. It's internally inconsistent, and so it would have been booted for that reason. And so we can take a look at the Scriptures internally and understand what it has to say. Well, starting in that, I think that it might be almost most helpful to just see what it says very straightforward. In Psalm 119, it says, Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. A few verses later, it says, All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Isaiah 40 says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. In the New Testament, we're told, as Pastor Ben pointed out last week, that all Scripture is God-breathed. In other words, it's given to us from God and therefore trustworthy. Another very important couple of verses in this regard in examining the internal evidence for the trustworthiness of the Bible comes in 2 Peter chapter 1 where we read this. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That means that human beings are the one who penned that, penned the Scriptures. That's why when you read it, you can see differences in personality and differences in style, but that they were all inspired by the same Holy Spirit so that what ultimately was written is what God desired for us to have. That's some of the internal testimony of the Scriptures. But certainly also very telling, maybe one of the most telling proofs of all, has to do with prophecy, has to do with prophecy. To be able to predict that something is going to happen before it actually does, and then it actually does happen, that is otherworldly. Now, a lot of people have tried to do that in any of a number of realms, have result, you know, with less than impressive results. For instance, in 1950, it was predicted that by the year 2000, due to improved nutrition, that all women would be, quote, at least six feet tall, wear a size 11 shoe, have the shoulders of a wrestler and the muscles of a truck driver. I don't know if that's the body image all of you ladies are looking for or not, but uh, that's, that's, uh, that's what they believed in 1950. That prediction did not come true, at least not for everybody. <laughs> okay, elsewhere it was predicted that by the late 90s that nighttime joggers would begin consuming a drink that would cause their skin to, grow, to glow bright green after dark. Or, let me give you one more here, if none of that seems particularly relevant to you, it was also predicted that by now, by 2023, that everybody would be a vegetarian and that nobody would drink coffee. 
Imagine how cranky those people you live near would be without their coffee or without their steak or whatever their, their thing is. All right. The fact is that predicting the future with accuracy is not a human accomplishment. And so if there is something that predicts the future with perfect accuracy, even predicted hundreds or thousands of years before they actually happen, you would know that that has some supernatural source behind it, something that goes well beyond human ability. And that's exactly what we have in the Scriptures. We talk about this all the time, that what God has said is going to happen has happened perfectly as He prophesied it. You see a lot of that through the Christmas story we were just talking about, about Bethlehem and, and all of those sorts of things, a virgin birth and all of those things. Um, and they've all been fulfilled or else they're slated for some future fulfillment, like the second coming of Jesus. So there's no doubt that the internal evidence is very strong, to say the least, but that's not to say there aren't people that argue against it. Because some people, if you open it up and you just take a look and you say, well, it looks like that contradicts what it says over here with this. And so sort of the conclusion that is jumped to is it looks like a contradiction to me. And if that's a contradiction, then we can't trust it. And if we can't trust that, we can't trust anything in the Bible. So let's just throw it out. But let me give you this illustration. It might just help in this regard. Suppose that Pastor John and Pastor Ben were to come over to your house, and for some reason you answered the door <laughs> and let them in, all right? I don't know why you would, but let's just say you did. And they come in, and you're talking a little while, and pretty soon Pastor John says, well, you know what? There's actually a newcomer luncheon coming up on January 15th, as there is, by the way. So that's awesome, that's good, and, and you're happy to hear that, and, and they leave, and a little bit later, you're with somebody else, and you're thinking, they might want to go to that, and you say, so, so Pastor John was over at the house, and he told me that there's a newcomer luncheon on January 15th, you might want to check that out. You don't mention Pastor Ben at all. Now, you weren't lying to them, you weren't misleading them, it wasn't wrong information, it was a perfectly accurate description of you being told that information. But somebody else who might have been there or somebody else who might re report that exact same incident might say, yeah, the other day Pastor John Pastor Ben were over at our house and, and said, you know, that there is this thing coming up. And it's like, well, those are two completely different things. Neither one is wrong. Neither one is inconsistent. Neither one is suggesting that they were an error or that you were an error in reporting it. It's just that it's different. So in the, in the case where there are these contradictions that are sometimes offered, such as in the case of the resurrection account in the Gospels, one of them says that there was one angel, one of them that says that there was two. Well, it's the same sort of thing. Just because there's an apparent contradiction doesn't mean that there's an error. It's something sometimes that we just simply don't have enough understanding. Maybe there is something more that's going to be revealed, maybe through some archaeological discovery, that's going to help us to understand something that we don't already understand. Or maybe just because it says it two different ways and it appears as a contradiction, in our mind we might be ready to jettison it whether, where there is another perfectly clear and, and workable way to understand the circumstance, such as the illustration that I offered for you there. When we are looking at the internal evidence for the Bible, it's important to keep in mind that difficulties aren't the same thing as errors. So, one of my seminary professors, the same Gleason Archer I mentioned just a moment ago, he's a guy who learned some 30 languages 
All of them, or almost all of them, related to the biblical period. He sort of summarized this in these words. He said, As I have dealt with one apparent discrepancy after another and have studied the alleged contradictions between the biblical record and the evidence of linguistics, archaeology, or science, my confidence in the trustworthiness of Scripture has been repeatedly verified and strengthened. Internal evidence. All can be seen to support the reliability of the Scriptures. You've got manuscript evidence. You have internal evidence. Well, there's one more we're going to talk about quickly here, and that is external evidence. That is, is there anything that was said at that period of time that has nothing to do with the Bible itself in terms of people who wrote it, that sort of thing, that speak about the Bible and what it is? And the answer is yes. There are people, many people, in fact, that spoke about it. I'm going to share a couple of these with you. One is a guy named Papias, is a bishop of Hierapolis, and uh, he said in 125 A.D. that Mark, the gospel writer Mark, he said, made no mistake. Irenaeus said Matthew published his own gospel among the Hebrews in their own tongue. Mark himself handed down to us the writing the substance of Peter's preaching. Luke set down in a book the gospel preached by his teacher, and then John produced his gospel while he was living at Ephesus in Asia. Another very important witness is this guy Josephus, this ancient Jewish historian, wrote at the time of the New Testament. Now, he wasn't a believer in Jesus, and so he had no reason to prop up the New Testament or the things that were written there. But listen to what he says about what was going on at that time. See if it sounds a little bit like what you know from the Scriptures. He wrote, about this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many of the Jews and many of the Greeks. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, he appeared to them restored to life. Sounds pretty much like the Bible, doesn't it? Sounds like the New Testament from someone who wasn't otherwise inclined to believe what the New Testament said, which is only even a stronger proof because he had no reason to support these claims that were made in the Scriptures or the way that that was recorded. The external writing served to support the Bible and does, as does one more thing, and that's archaeology. Archaeology. There have been a number of discoveries, many, many discoveries that have been made through the years that support what we find in the Scriptures. One of the most important of those we've already talked about, the Dead Sea Scrolls. But there were others, some which are pretty recent, relatively speaking. It was just in the early 2000s that we came into understanding or seeing or recognizing or becoming aware of something called the James Ossuary. An ossuary is an ancient bone box where they put the bones of somebody who had died, and they, this particular one dates to the first century A.D. And on it, there's an inscription. It says, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Now, of course, whenever there's something that makes this claim, a lot of times there's some bias, and so some people are going to, to say, well, that's not true, and there's been a lot of debate over this particular inscription. But the preponderance of the evidence suggests that it is actually real, and it's the, it's the real genuine article. And of course, you can see the significance of that. 
something dated to the first century that talks about James, a guy that we know from the Scriptures, who was, who was the half-brother of Jesus, who was the leader in the church in Jerusalem, who wrote one of the letters of the New Testament that is called by his name. We know that he is the half-brother of Jesus. We know that he is the son of Joseph. Joseph is the father of Jesus, the son, also the father of James, the half-brother. We know about Jesus. We know what it says or what that is suggesting then to us to understand about the reliability of it supporting what was happening at that particular time in the first century as well as the testimony of the Scriptures. Or in 1968, there was an ancient burial site that was uncovered in Jerusalem, and it had 35 bodies in it. One of those bodies still had in its feet a seven-inch long nail. And, other, and you could see also in the hands of that particular skeletal structure that there were bones that were worn where the nails would have been through the hands as they would stand up and as happens in crucifixion, just helping to suggest to us once again that that is a form of execution that was used in the time of Jesus. Or there have been a lot of people who have suggested that the New Testament can't be relied upon because there are coins that are talked about in the, in the New Testament that we knew nothing of. Well, guess what? Archaeologists have found all of those coins now at this point. So those that were dismissing it have lost that sort of, of argument against the reality of what the Scriptures are. There's much more evidence archaeologically that we could talk about. Let me just sum it up with the words of a renowned renowned uh, archaeologist, Jewish archaeologist, Nelson Gluck, he wrote, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. In fact, quite to the contrary, the more archaeological discoveries that are made, the more that they serve to support what the Scriptures have to say. Taken individually, each of these tests, manuscript, internal, external, taken individually, they all make a very, very strong case for the reliability of the Scriptures. Taken together, they make a very powerful, powerful statement of the consistent testimony of who Jesus, that He was who He said He was, and that the Scriptures are what they claim to be. So, our question, can the Bible be trusted Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, let me give you a little warning. As we've talked through this, I know it's been a little bit academic. It sounded maybe a little bit like a classroom as we've made our way along. And I want to urge you to guard against just making it something that's academic, something that is just for knowledge, something just for learning, that we leave it in that realm. It's very important that we would not do just that. You can certainly apply academic principles, and I would encourage you to do so. It's important that we would understand the why and the wherefore and the arguments behind and arguments for and the arguments against to come to understand how we might understand what the Scriptures are. But don't leave it just in that realm because the Scriptures weren't given so that you would just have more knowledge. They would, were given so that you would have life. Life through Jesus and what He has done for us. The Scriptures can be relied upon, and that being the case, if that is true, we must not let it sit on our shelves. 
we must not ignore it. We must not only open it when we get together with one another, but that we would make it that which our lives are driven by because it is reliable, because it is the Word of God that we can take and apply to our lives. Next week, we're going to dig into the idea of applying it to our lives. How do we come to read it? How do we come to understand it? How do we come to apply it to our lives day in and day out? You're not going to want to miss that one, so be sure to be back, we- be back next week as we dig into that. But in the meantime, we can already begin to open it up. We're at the beginning of a new year. If you haven't already made some commitment, some new commitment to being in the Scriptures, Now is a perfect time to dig in so that we might come to learn it more, to know it better, because it helps us to know Jesus better, who is the one who gives us life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these scriptures, these scriptures that you have given to us, and that there are so many different evidences that point out to us that it is what the Scripture writers claim that it is, that it is something that can be relied upon, that we can place our trust in the Scriptures, that we can know that what we are reading is that which you have given to us through human authors, but inspired by your Holy Spirit. Lord, you have given it to us. You have protected it through years through all sorts of circumstances. And Lord, we love it just as those who copied it originally love it. And we desire to live it as well. So Lord, give us a brand new commitment knowing that it can be trusted to live it out for your glory and for your purposes. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the central message of the scriptures that is very consistent from start to end is that it tells us about Jesus, and it tells us about the fact that mankind has a sin problem, and that because of that sin problem, we needed a Savior. The Scriptures tell us in many different places and in many different ways, but one consistent unified message that Jesus is that Savior, that He came into our world, that we might have hope, that we might have life. And what required of Him was His death upon the cross, Because there was sin that separated us from God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And Jesus provided that for us. And the scriptures tell us, encourage us, urge us that we would not forget what Jesus has done. That we would continue to celebrate it. That we would continue to remember it. That we would continue to lift up his name for what he has done for us. And we do that on a regular basis through something that we call communion or the Lord's Supper. And we're going to participate in that together with one another here in a few minutes. If for some reason you still do not have your kit, uh, you can go out. We're going to sing a little bit and then we're going to participate in this. You can go to the back and you can get one of these if you don't have one already. And I want to encourage you to use the song as we sing it. It's a song that tells us of what Jesus has done for us. It's a song that offers our thanksgiving to God for what He has done for us, for the cross, for His blood that was poured out on our behalf that we might have life. It is something that ought to bring praise and thanksgiving and contemplation to our minds for the goodness of God on our behalf. So as we sing, 
Prepare your heart, prepare your mind for receiving these elements together. Let's sing. Jesus, for your willingness to have your body broken so that we might have hope, so that we might have life. We come to celebrate what he has done for us. If you want to remove that very top layer, take out that wafer. Jesus said in the upper room when he established this with his disciples shortly before he went to that cross, he said, this is my body broken for you, that you're going to see my flesh torn, my body broken, as often as you eat it, do so in remembrance of me. In the same manner after supper, Jesus took the cup, said this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the willingness of your Son Jesus to come into our world, to be born, yes, but to die. We thank you for his willingness to have his body broken on our behalf. We thank you for the blood applied to our lives, that we might have hope, that we might have life. And Lord, as we worship you around this truth, around this reality of your goodness for us, of your looking forward into time and understanding what our need was going to be, we're so very grateful that you didn't just leave us stuck in our sin, but you've provided a way out. 
We worship you for it. And we celebrate that together as we receive these elements in the name of Jesus. Amen. Think about these lyrics as we continue to sing them, as we continue to celebrate what Jesus has done on our behalf. Lift up your voices as we do so. Lift up your thanksgiving to God for his greatness, for his goodness in our lives. Let us sing together. Please stand as we do so.
Our Heavenly Father, glory to your name for the blood applied, for the love extended, for the fact that you have saved our lives, giving us hope over death, hope over sin, because of Jesus, his death on the cross and his victory over the grave. We thank you for it. We revel in it. We celebrate it and the confidence we have in it because it's what your word tells us took place. That is where our hope is found. Lord, as we go from this place, we just pray, we just ask that you would continue to inspire us with what you have done, that our lives might be altered, that they would be changed, that we would live in greater conformity with your word and with your will toward us. We thank you for Jesus and the blood applied. We pray in his name. Amen. Are you grateful for the work of Jesus? Amen indeed. If you'd like to pray with someone before you go, come on down. Otherwise, thanks so much for coming. May the Lord bless you as you go.